of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Hello and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, I have taken a little break since I recently completed the Psalm Project, which, by the way, the recordings of those 150 Psalms uh, should be out on an, an album soon, anywhere you can stream music. Um, it was approved, and so I'm, I'm thinking the next few days it should be out. I did put some of those Psalms on my recent... Uh, Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs album, um, but you can hear all 150 psalms on the Psalm Project uh, when when it is released um, here probably in the next few days. And so I've taken a little break uh, because that was a lot of work. <laughs> I devoted almost two years to that, uh, trying as best as possible to do two psalms a week and persevered and made it to the end. And so here we are. I've been busy in the past, well, I would say the past seven years, really. I mean, I've I've written several books, recorded numerous albums, published some works, some articles. Um, I completed three doctorates. Uh, One of them is not accredited, but I will say my uh, PhD in uh, historical theology is it was equally as um, rigorous as the other two doctoral degrees that I completed. Um, I say all that to say that I've been busy. And so I took a break uh, after completing the Psalm Project. And so I am getting back into um, normal active worship podcasts, which discusses worship theology and culture and the intersection of those topics. I believe that worship is life for the Christian. Everybody worships something or someone. Even if they do not realize it, everyone worships worships something and someone. And if someone is not worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, they are worshiping the God of this world or the uh, uh, the what Scripture would refer to as the God of this world, the devil. Satan himself, because our nature is evil, we naturally worship evil. And people may think, well, I I don't worship evil. And I know people who are not Christians that they don't worship evil, but in fact, they do. We are radical God-haters by nature. And so I say all that to say that worship is life. And what we do with our lives the actions that we take, where we spend our money, the people um, that we hang around, what we watch, what we listen to, all of that um, is a reflection of where our devotion is. And so we all worship something. And as a Christian, we ha- everyone has a particular worldview or a, if you want to talk about a, an interpretation of things, a hermeneutic uh, but everyone has a perspective on something, and 
And for Christians, it should be a biblical worldview. That is not to say that every Christian should think the same about everything. Uh, I certainly disagree with certain people on, on issues, on theological topics, uh, even on maybe actions in our lives. And you talk about secondary issues. Um, yeah, I disagree with some people, and I'm sure you do too. Everyone has differences in how they perceive the world. Uh, the key is is uh, is the way that we look at things rooted in the scripture. Is it rooted in our faith? And I certainly think it is possible for that to be the case, and yet two people still not see eye to eye. That is certainly possible. Yes, there are some black and white issues, but I think there are probably less of those than people may realize. I say all this, my point is that worship is life, and because worship is life, our worldview and our perspective is important as Christians. And so um, worship, theology, culture, all of these intersect. These are, these are not separate to topics, because worship is life, and if worship is life, uh, then we live in a culture, then we should see our culture... And we should see the things that happen in our day-to-day -day lives through the perspective of worship. And so that is the, the purpose of this podcast. Um, that is why I've entitled this podcast, Act of Worship. As, Rome, as Paul says in Romans um, 12, that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And that is our spiritual act of worship. Worship is an act. It's not just singing music. And so worship is an act. We should perceive things and, and view things through the grid and through the lens of worship. And so today I am back in a, my normal routine of the Act of Worship podcast. Not just Psalms, but getting back to worship theology and culture. Now, uh, since I finished the Psalm Project, that does mean I probably will not do podcasts twice a week. I probably won't even do it weekly. I mean, maybe monthly or twice a month or something like that. Um, I'm enjoying not having to work on a degree, writing a dissertation. I've, I'm done with some projects, and I'm sure eventually I will have more projects to work on. But right now, I'm enjoying... Uh, the time off. And so, um, but I'm back to the normal active worship podcasts and, and we're here today getting back into it. Uh, so this is uh, the normal routine when I will have the active worship podcast discussing worship, theology, and culture. So that is a very long lead-in, I know, to what I'm going to discuss today, and, and that is the doctrine of adoption and its effect. The doctrine of adoption. And um, uh, a lot of times I pick these topics because I am looking at the lectionary, um, uh, which is a liturgical tool that uh, someone, someone that goes to a liturgical church would be very familiar with the lectionary and the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and sometimes I will look at the topics for that time of year. And this topic of adoption seemed to come up quite a bit. Uh, maybe not directly, but uh, in certain ways it certainly popped up in the scripture readings. 
And so I, I thought it would be important to look at the doctrine of adoption. It's a topic really I've mentioned, but I haven't discussed as an episode topic. Um, and so that's what I'm going to do today. Talk about the doctrine of adoption and its effect. And so in Christian theology, the doctrine of adoption is perhaps a topic that is not discussed enough and is certainly not understood as it should be. And while it's likely mentioned in Reformed circles more than others, it is a universal Christian doctrine. Uh, the, do- the doctrine of adoption, it's perhaps something that I really didn't start hearing a lot about until I was in college. Growing up, I, I might have heard the word adoption, but nobody really ever discussed the doctrine of adoption in detail. But it's vital that God's people understand the, dop- the doctrine of adoption because it each person, each Christian, is adopted themselves. And so when God's people gather to worship, they gather as adopted individuals and thus comprise one family and one body. And so adoption is crucial to Christian worship, and it should have a dramatic effect on individuals' lives. And so in a broad sense, I'm going to examine the doctrine of adoption and the subsequent effect that it should have on the believer's life. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the foundation and the details of the doctrine of adoption. In Reformed theology, known in Latin as the um, uh, the Ordo Salutis, um, that's the Latin meaning order of salvation, the Ordo uh, Salutis, Adoption is regarded as a step immediately subsequent to justification. And so uh, the Ordo Salutis includes election, foreknowledge, predestination, redemption, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Um, And there are probably some uh, subtitles that you can put on those as well, but that's kind of the general idea. Uh, regarding the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, there is debate on uh, the specific order. And, uh, and, and if you've had any discussions with someone who is not reformed, you would know very quickly there is debate on uh, whether or not God does everything or if there is something that the individual does in that order. And so without detailing the order of salvation and its nuances, since this topic is not in the scope of this material today, the underpinning concept to understand is that that someone's change or regeneration occurs after the point of redemption. In other words, salvation happens to individuals passively, not actively. Now, there are a lot of people that would hear that and that would throw them off, but salvation does happen Passively, That is to say that the work of salvation is objective since it is employed by God himself. In other words, no part of salvation holds a basis of human intervention at all. So you hear somebody say, pray to accept Jesus and you will be saved. That is false. God saves people first. That is his work. That is not our work. And so to say that we will be saved, we will become Christians if we ask Jesus into our heart, that is to say that some work we do is what saves us. 
And yet we will sit there and claim all day long that we are saved not by works but by faith. And yet say, well, if you ask Jesus into your heart, you'll be saved. Well, is that not a work? In physical adoption, parents take the responsibility of a child that is not naturally their own. And in the same manner, God holds the responsibility of his children and their own spiritual maturation and protection. And so physical adoption has, in Christian discussion, been discussed as the visible gospel. I remember hearing John Piper one time refer to adoption as the visible gospel because physical adoption displays what occurs in a believer's life when he or she becomes a child of God. So physical adoption is sort of a picture of what happens when God adopts his people. God takes one who is not naturally his, and in fact, as I mentioned earlier, is opposed to him and undeserving to be his. He takes that person and he adopts them as his own child. And when physical adoption occurs, believers should rejoice and understand it as a picture of the gospel of Christ. That is why I love physical adoption so much. Seeing people adopt children, it is a picture of the gospel because all believers are adopted. This concept of adoption is nothing new. It is certainly present in the Bible, in the New Testament. Um, in New Testament society, people would have understood adoption, although I'll get into it a little bit, but it was a, diff it was a little different than how it is today. Um, but uh, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, 5, by the way, the Apostle Paul, a lot of his theology revolves around this doctrine of adoption. And in Galatians 4, 5, he says that um, God's purpose is to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons or daughters. Uh, Romans um, Romans um, 8, 15 Romans 8.15 is another place where the Apostle Paul is talking about adoption. And he says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And then Ephesians 1.5, Paul says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So there is the basis of adoption, the, the purpose of God's will. He predestined us to adoption according to the purpose of his will. So whatever the purpose of his will is, adoption stems from that. It is founded upon that. And so all believers, all Christians are adopted. There is no such thing as a natural child of God. Every child of God is adopted. In fact, human nature is not as children of God, but as radical God-hating opposers of him. There's a new, new age idea that perhaps you've heard, and that is that people, all people, are children of God. I've heard that before, that we're all children of God. All people are creations of God, but only those who are found in Christ and in right relationship with him are children of God. And uh, it's difficult to argue to people. People don't understand that. They think just because they were made by God and even made in his image, that they are his children. No. Everyone who is made by God is his creation. But only those found in Christ 
are children of God. And in the physical realm, one might incorrectly assume a natural child to be more important than an adopted child. You know, I I mean, maybe you've heard something like this in a conversation um, where you have parents that have adopted a child and... um, in someone not maybe unintentionally they don't mean this but um they they might say something like um oh so these are your real kids referring to natural children an adopted child is one of their real kids but in in new testament culture when a child was adopted that child really held more rights than someone who was a natural child in fact In New Testament culture, a natural child could be disowned, but an adopted child could not. New Testament adoption signifies the complete abandonment of a child's status and way of life prior to being adopted. In New Testament culture, at the point of adoption, a child became not only the responsibility of the parents, but also connected with the parents in a way that could not be broken. And an adopted child was under the protection of his or her adopted parents and even held greater rights than his or her siblings who were of the same bloodline as the parents. It's amazing. And that is why adoption is the visible gospel. Because once we are adopted into the family of God, once we are his children, nothing can break that. And so God has adopted people whose nature is sin and has taken responsibility for his his children's growth, well-being, and fundamental transformation. So adoption happens and then the life change happens and that is all God's doing. But it is a spiritual transformation that only occurs by God's employment himself. In other words, no part of salvation is the result of anything a person does. And this includes a decision to follow Christ. The decision to follow Christ is the result, is the result of and happens subsequent to God's redemptive work. And so while uh, there may be a common idea that people decide to follow Christ and then he changes them, this order doesn't reflect that of Scripture. Every child of God is adopted, and so believers should count it as an undeserved gift to be part of the family of God. Uh, God, who doesn't need people and really doesn't have a sufficient reason to save anyone, no one deserves it, he has chosen and adopted his children. And so this magnificent reality should foster praise in the lives of of God's people. But something connected to adoption is the idea of grafting. God's children are adopted and a grafting process occurs. Perhaps you've heard this word grafting, um, skin grafting. If somebody perhaps has burns somewhere on their body, they can take the skin from another part of the body and graft it over those that burned area uh, so that that skin that they've grafted on becomes part of the skin in that area. It's, it's, it's the idea that God has taken us, and while the people of Israel are revealed to be God's chosen people in Scripture, through the new covenant in Christ, many more who were not part and who are not part of Israel are grafted into God's family. 
Without Christ's mediation, there would be no hope of eternal life for anyone. Gentiles, uh, even though we're Gentiles, in other words, not Jews, uh, God's people hold the same rights and are found in the same covenant as God's chosen people because they are also God's chosen people. And that is not to say that someone who is Jewish and who still rejects Christ as the Messiah is a part of that family at all. Actually, they're not. There are Messianic Jews who have accepted Christ as the Messiah and understand him as the Messiah. Those people are grafted into the family of God just the same as anyone who's a Gentile. And so speaking of God's chosen people due to Christ's mediation, it's to speak of the Gentiles grafted into God's family. In other words, Christians are now on the same plane as those of whom Scripture speaks as the chosen people of God, Israel. So Christians, not just Jews, are God, Christians and God's chosen people. When you say Christians and when you say God's chosen people or God's children, these terms are synonymous. But this type of feat didn't occur without God adopting his sons and daughters. And it's through the spiritual reality of adoption that people not born as Israelites are among the chosen people of God. They are grafted into this family. You may have heard me before um, talking about spiritual reality. A lot of people think that the physical realm, what we see, that that's reality. And yet, the Apostle Paul says our battle, what we wage war against, is not against flesh and blood. It's It's against... Uh, spiritual beings. And so the reality, what we see, what we think is reality, is not reality. (laughs) The reality is the spiritual things going on. And those of us who are Christians have been adopted and grafted in to the family of God. Another aspect of the doctrine of adoption is Uh, The idea that the children of God are heirs. God's children are heirs and hold the same rights. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I want you to notice the links there. Uh, A bunch of ifs. If this is true, then this is true. If this is true, then this is true. The Apostle Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know you are a Christian? How do you know you are adopted? Your spirit, the Spirit of God, and your spirit are aligned. In other words, your life reflects that that the Holy Spirit wants you to reflect. Your life is an overflow of what happens in you by the Holy Spirit. And the, the Apostle Paul says, if 
we are children of God, we're heirs of God. And if heirs with God, we will also uh, share in his glory. But he puts in this uh, sort of a condition. In other words, this will be the evidence that you are a child of God. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. Is there suffering in your life? I have to ask myself that quite a bit. And there are times where I go, maybe not, or maybe not enough. Because all believers will suffer. It is a guarantee. So if you're not suffering, you might want to ask what's going on in your spiritual life. So the succession presented here by Paul is that uh, we are children. And because of that, we are heirs. And then because of that, we are glorified with Christ. That's in verse 17. But the process begins, according to verse 15, with adoption, where he says, uh, you have received the spirit of adoption. So the logical progression implies that since God's people are adopted, they're not only children, but heirs, and therefore hold such rights to glorification, the same rights that Jesus Christ has and that is because we are in him of ourselves we do not hold those rights this statement doesn't negate the fact that christians are undeserving of adoption rather adoption is viewed as even more miraculous since god's uh, since god has sovereign uh, sovereignly adopted such undeserving people as me and you and so the believer's position as an heir is not linked to what she or he or she naturally deserves but only to what Christ deserves since, since this position as heirs comes from being found in Christ. And so the, the truth of the believer's position as an heir of Christ should never be taken for granted. Adoption should spawn gratitude rather than a sentiment of privilege because adoption is not based on what someone has or has not done, but only on what Christ has already done. And so, by whom are God's people adopted? Christ. In whom do God's children reside? Christ. How are God's children heirs? They are heirs because they are in Christ, who is the one true heir. And so, being one in him and one with him makes them heirs as well. We are heirs because we are in Christ. And every benefit a believer holds is because of Christ. And so to know and believe that God's children are heirs and hold the same rights to Simon is to simultaneously know and understand that without Christ, not only would they not be heirs, but they would be utterly hopeless. We all would be. So let us thank God for his adoption. So we're talking about adoption and in you know, people hear doctrines like this and theological topics, and a lot of people may ask, so what? I, I laugh sometimes when people say, oh, I'm not into theology. I just want to love Jesus. That is theology. When you tell a child, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so, you are doing theology. And so we are adopted. What now? The doctrine of adoption is one of the most vital to understand, not only in Reformed theology, as I'm obviously into, but broadly as a Christian, because the implications of understanding the doctrine of adoption are eternal. 
It's predicated upon an understanding that human nature is corrupt and totally evil. And because of that, a proper understanding of spiritual adoption should cause believers to live with an emphatic gratitude and a reflection of God's mercy. So no one deserves the benefits and blessings found in Christ as heirs with him. But in Christ, we share in his inheritance as sons and daughters of the king. So understanding the doctrine of adoption should not cause believers to live with pride, but rather with humility. The doctrine of adoption should not give believers a sense of entitlement, but rather an eternal gratitude that fosters mercy toward other people, especially those who are not yet his. Understanding the, do- the doctrine of adoption really should produce an understanding of identity for God's people. Not only current identity, but, pre- but past identity. Children of God are undeservedly adopted and should live as such. In other words, every aspect of a believer's life should reflect his or her, or her new identity and progressive sanctification. Without adoption, no one would be a child of God. But in his great mercy, he has sovereignly adopted his people for his purpose. And so the children of God need need to accomplish that to which they have been called in adoption and, and reflect the great mercy of the one who has called them. May that be our prayer. May that be all of us, our, the, the truth that rings forth in our lives. May we live as people who are adopted by the King because of the love and mercy of God, because of the mediation of Jesus Christ. And so when we gather with the faithful people, with the redeemed, we are gathering not as natural children of God, but as individuals who have been adopted by God, and now we form one body in Christ. The importance of the doctrine of adoption cannot be overstated, but it must have a significant impact on our lives when we understand it. When we understand who we are or who we were, when we understand who God is, and we understand the great undeserved mercy we have been given because we are adopted by God through Jesus Christ. So that is my thoughts. Those are my broad thoughts on the doctrine of adoption and its personal effect on our lives. I hope and pray that when you worship in your own local church setting, you consider how blessed you are to be adopted by the king and that when you worship with others, you will realize you are worshiping with many people, your brothers and sisters in Christ who have also been adopted. And what a joy that is. So thank you for listening today to my thoughts on the doctrine of adoption. And thank you for joining me today on the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Did it, did it, did it, did it.